This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello. And welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, The History of Egypt. Episode 63, Hatshepsut's Excellent Adventure. Wherein our current monarch, Ma'at Kavre Hatshepsut, launches her greatest public spectacle, and her most famous achievement. This episode is brought to you by Brian Harries, Joshua Perry, and Michael Whitry. Thank you for your support, folks. Please enjoy the show. If you are enjoying the podcast and think it is worth a dollar or two to help with server costs, Head on over to EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com to make a donation via PayPal. Your donation will help us cover server hosting and research costs, and we are grateful for all assistance. The year is 1488 BCE, approximately, being the seventh regnal year of Tutmos III, the seventh regnal year of Hatshepsut's regency, and the first year of her out-and-out kingship. Sounds confusing, right? The reason is simple. Hatshepsut never instituted her own regnal dates, at least not formally. Behind the scenes, she certainly did, and we'll get into that in an episode or two. But as far as the general population and the official calendars were concerned, it was year seven of Tutmos III, and that did not change, regardless of who was actually in control. The Queen King had spent Regnal Year 7 engaged in organising a massive building project which she had begun at Thebes. Her mortuary temple, Jesser Jesseru, was now underway on the West Bank, and all the necessary rituals and preparations were completed. So, confident of its foundations and progress, Hatshepsut turned management of Jesser Jesseru over to her closest advisor, a man named Senenmut. More on him at another time. The Queen King now had new priorities. Some of them were pretty standard, like making additions to temples and all that sort of stuff, and one that was very much a novelty. Hatshepsut seems to have recognised that the economic and political stability of the country was conducive to a new, great project in the mould of earlier generations. With the 18th dynasty now approximately 60 years old, Egypt was back on its feet. The time had come for the new rulers to match or surpass the achievements of earlier generations. For Hatshepsut, the most attractive option was an expedition outside of the country's borders. Specifically, she wanted to go to the land of Punt, a land which had not seen Egyptian visitors for nearly 300 years. Punt, as we know, was a semi-mystical land on the shores of the Red Sea. Somewhere around Ethiopia or Yemen are the leading candidates. It was a land the Egyptians had known about since the Old Kingdom, and had visited periodically. Small expeditions had been launched in the 6th dynasty, and a huge royal armada had travelled there in the 5th and 12th dynasties. For nearly 600 years the Egyptians had been travelling to Punt in their fleets, bringing back valuable commodities for the glory of kings and gods. But for 300 years before Hatshepsut, the Egyptians had been too wrapped up in internal affairs to visit the country. Since the 12th dynasty had collapsed and the Hyksos had invaded, 
the prospect of expeditions to Punt must have seemed an impossible luxury. To the best of our knowledge, Hatshepsut was the first king to consider the project since the days of Amenemhat III, around 1790 BCE. Before her, the faraway trade lands had been the end of the world, never visited, only remembered and talked about. So Hatshepsut had a really good opportunity here. She could launch a project that was both novel and familiar, something to garner great prestige for her and her rule, while still being entirely consistent with royal precedent. Remember, for a woman seeking to define her place in a traditionally male profession, precedent played a slightly bigger role than usual. So Punt was a very attractive option, and Hatshepsut capitalised on it fully. She began planning the expedition long before it actually got underway. Some estimates suggest there was up to two years between putting the idea into preparation and actually doing it. There were many things to attend to after all. First of all, the Queen needed ships, huge, sea-going ships that could ply the waters of the Red Sea while burdened with cargo and sailors, and return without any damage or loss. That was going to require good shipbuilders and high-quality lumber. But as always, Egypt did not have the wood necessary for such an endeavour, so Hatshepsut had to send away to Lebanon and the city of Byblos for her lumber supplies. This took time and negotiation, while at home, shipbuilders practised their craft on riverboats, preparing themselves to revive the art of seagoing ships. This was a long process, and it probably took the full two years of preparation, but it would pay off. Hatshepsut was going to have the grandest fleet seen in Egypt since the Old Kingdom and the reign of Sahure, from whom she may have taken a lot of inspiration. More on that later. This was going to be an expedition unlike any other in living memory, and if it took a while to prepare, it was all worth it in the end. There's not much to tell about the preparation. They trained sailors and shipbuilders and got supplies together for trading down in Punt and to supply the actual people themselves. Finally, the day came when the ships were ready for dispatch. At Thebes, the court gathered in the Temple of Karnak, where the journey would begin. The ritual itself was partly a formality. Hatshepsut was smart. To ensure the greatest likelihood of success for her project, she enlisted the aid of the priesthood of Amun. She would bring the expedition before the god, asking his blessing before launching it on his way. This way, the expedition would have the greatest likelihood of success, because without divine favour, no project could ever hope to achieve its goals. Any loss would be devastating to morale, both for the kingdom and for the queen-king herself. Heck, if the expedition to Punt didn't work, if it failed in any way, there is a good chance people would see such failure as a direct condemnation of Hatshepsut herself. For if the gods did not support her enough to aid her journey, what hope did she have to govern legitimately? It was a precarious situation, a real gamble, but Hatshepsut was in luck. The god was on her side. Quote, the king himself, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut, came before the god. The majesty of the court made supplication at the steps of the Lord of Gods. A command was heard from the great throne, an oracle of Amun himself, that the ways to Punt should be searched out, that the highways to the myrrh trees should be penetrated. The oracle himself said, I will lead the army on water and on land to bring marvels from the God's land for this God, for the fashioner of Hatshepsut's beauty. End quote. The oracle of Amun and his promise of support was the best start possible for the Punt expedition. To the assembled courtiers and the sailors who would make the journey, what could be more promising? 
Nothing short of a physical appearance of our moon himself could have inspired greater confidence than this public proclamation, heard in the temple, in the shrine, that our moon himself was going to lead the army on water and on land, to bring marvels for the queen. This was an absolutely fantastic boon for Hatshepsut. Was it a manufactured boon? Almost certainly. But what did that matter when people believed it, and when it helped launch a dangerous expedition in good spirits? I think we can give Hatshepsut a pass here, on the grounds of ends justifying the means, and because the project itself was a dangerous one. Lives could be lost on the open sea, and any bit of propaganda that pushed the sailors to work harder would only benefit them in the long run. Sure, this was all ultimately in service to the crown and the queen's ambitions, but it was a good start nonetheless, at least in terms of ensuring the sailors' success. The journey to Punt began on the Nile, but not in the way you would expect. The ships were not going down the river to Punt, although that was theoretically possible. They were taking the more direct route, the Red Sea route, which meant that the ships at Thebes had to be carried over land to the ports on the Red Sea coast. How would they do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hatshepsut's shipbuilders had designed their ships in a very clever manner. Just like the Old Kingdom river boats, the great seagoing ships were built in a sort of jigsaw fashion. They could be disassembled with ease, and then carried piece by piece over land, and reassembled for their voyage on the sea. And this was exactly what Hatshepsut's sailors did. The expedition began at Thebes, and then sailed north to the town of Koptos. This was the easternmost point of the Nile in Egypt, and a good place to start out for the sea. Upon reaching the town, Hatshepsut's soldiers and sailors disassembled their ships, five of them in total, and began the march east. They were taking the route of the Wadi Hammamat, which ran from Koptos out to the Red Sea. This old riverbed had been the main thoroughfare from Egypt to the Red Sea for generations, and the expedition was confident both in the territory and in its work. As they marched through canyons, they were reminded of the deeds of their ancestors, for expeditions and workers had left graffiti and inscriptions all over the rocks and walls of the Wadi Hammamat in days gone by. For the literate among the expedition, these records told of great kings and officials, and of simple workers whose efforts the punt sailors were emulating. Now, did Hatshepsut participate in this journey? No. Like most kings, she opted to remain in the Nile Valley, to preserve her authority at home, and to avoid the totally unnecessary risk of the seagoing voyage. In her place, she sent a royal envoy, or delegate. This was a man named Nehesi, the overseer of the treasury. Probably a good choice for a trade mission, right? A week or two after they set out, Nehesi and the expedition reached the Red Sea coast, and after a few days reconstructing the great ships, they could begin their voyage in earnest. The fleet numbered five large ships, according to the inscriptions. They were long vessels, with a large mast in the centre, for holding great sails. Built of cedar wood and crewed by soldiers and sailors, these ships were magnificent symbols of the Egyptian state, and they would, hopefully, carry the men on a safe journey of more than a thousand miles. The expedition from the Red Sea coast would have begun probably around September, This is when the trade winds begin to blow from the north to the south, making for speedier travelling. With the trade winds rising, the ship's sails filling, and the sailors eager to be on their way, Nehesi, in his official guise as envoy of the king of Egypt, gave the order. Ropes were thrown, oars and sails began their work, and the great ships of Hatshepsut were underway.
The voyage must have been relatively uneventful, because the next scene of the reliefs shows the Egyptians already arriving at Punt. So, let's skip the voyage and jump ahead. We must remember here that no one has definitively proved where Punt actually was. There are a number of theories, and some good arguments all round. The general consensus is that Punt was probably located on the coast of Ethiopia, or even Somalia. Basically, the Horn of Africa, around the Gulf of Aden. The Egyptians were thus on their own continent, but in a slightly different ecological zone. Down here, away from the Sahara, there were forests and exotic animals like panthers. Aromatic woods could provide good sources of incense and myrrh, and as always, the land was supposedly teeming with gold and silver. Nehesi, overseer of the treasury, was definitely in his element. The Egyptian ships pulled into a river estuary, and moored themselves on the banks of a river near a Puntite village. This was a small town by Egyptian standards, probably only a few dozen huts. The Puntites were not a centralised state, and so the Egyptians, with their well-trained soldiers and their huge ships, probably made a bold impression on the locals. Now, this might be hut ships at grandstanding, but the narratives suggest that the Puntites did not try to resist the Egyptian presence, and were in fact rather submissive. Nehesi and his troops set up their camp on the riverbank, just beside the town. It was not long before the local bigwig, the Prince of Punt, came to see what all the fuss was about. The Prince of Punt was named Parahu, and he appeared before the Egyptian envoy, accompanied by his family. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about his family briefly, because they're fascinating. By which I mean, let's talk about Parahu's wife. Standing beside Parahu, and accompanied by some children, is a woman described conventionally as the princess or queen of Punt. And she is noteworthy. Not for anything she does, but for her physique, which is very unusual in Egyptian artistic conventions. You see, the Queen of Punt is not depicted in the traditional Egyptian manner, as a trim, slim woman who's basically idealised and conventional. Instead, this woman is depicted as phenomenally obese, with heavy folds of skin and an obvious abundance of flesh. This is really radical for the Egyptians to depict. No matter the person in question, Egyptian art always put ideal before reality. So why the unusual image? To put it simply, I think the artists were fascinated by this particular woman, and they wanted to emphasise the foreignness, the otherness of the people of Punt. Why were they so fascinated? Well, the answer may lie in the history of Africa in our own early modern period. You see, during the 19th century, European explorers, quote-unquote, started visiting the coast and interior of the African continent, trying to find peoples and places they didn't already know about. One of these, Mr. John Henning Speak, arrived in what is now Uganda, southwest of Ethiopia and Somalia. There, he observed a custom that may be very similar to what we see at Punt, and he wrote about it for us. Quote, in Uganda, I had heard that the wives of the king and princes were fattened to such an extent that they could not stand upright. I paid my respects to the king, with the hope of being able to see for myself the truth of the story. There was no mistake about it. When I entered the hut, I was struck with no small surprise, with the extraordinary dimensions, yet pleasing beauty, of the immoderately fat fair wife. She could not rise, and so large were her arms, that between the joints the flesh hung down like large, loose puddings. The princesses of Uganda, it is explained, 
were forced to consume milk nearly constantly. A high-fat diet and minimal movement made them eventually clinically obese, in some cases barely able to stand without great effort and discomfort. While the description and the practice may seem rather horrible to our sensibilities, it has been a common feature of many societies. Obesity has been in many cultures a signal of wealth and status. When you live in a subsistence economy, the display of something like weight gain is tantamount to a declaration of, I have access to as much food as I like. For visitors and for subjects, the sight of an obese princess or queen is a visible reminder of the wealth of the kingdom. It's a status symbol. So maybe the people of Punt felt the same way. Maybe this was the same custom just a couple of thousand years earlier. Whatever the exact reason, the Egyptians were utterly fascinated by this woman, and in an unusual break with idealistic convention, they depicted her as they saw her on the walls of Hatshepsut's temple. So, amidst all the idealized and conventional figures, you get this very strange, obese figure just standing there amongst all the rest. I've put a picture of the Queen of Punt on our website and our Facebook page, but if you want, you can just Google Queen of Punt, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The rest of the Puntite scenes are quite interesting, because, again, the Egyptians depicted what they had seen, rather than simply conventions. For instance, they made a special note of displaying the unusual Puntite houses. The Puntite houses were radically different from the Egyptian forms. They were mostly made of wood, and, significantly, they were built on top of poles. This raised them up generally from the ground level, and probably protected them from flood, or from animals. This is actually a practice that was used in my own country, New Zealand, by the native Māori tribes. They constructed their storehouses on tall poles, so removed the granaries from the ground, so that the kiore, the Pacific rat, could not reach the supplies. This may seem like good logic, but the Egyptians were absolutely fascinated, because back home in the Nile Valley, they didn't do any of that. They built all their buildings either on the ground level, or dug into the ground. The whole notion of putting a building or a house on top of a pole was completely foreign to them. They hadn't seen it either in the Nile Valley or in the Near East, because up in Syria and Palestine, people built their houses in pretty much the same way the Egyptians did. So when Hatshepsut's envoys and expedition arrived in Punt, they were greeted with something that they were entirely unfamiliar with in their own experience. Upon their return to Egypt, they decided to do the good thing and record this as they had seen it, rather than portraying the Puntites as conventional Egyptians. The result is a truly fascinating set of inscriptions, which I wish I could do full justice, but a picture paints a thousand words, and I've placed as many images as I can on our website and Facebook page. So anyway, Nehesi and his expedition were sitting in their camp by the village of the Prince of Punt. They were there to trade supplies and to receive the submission of Punt, because that was only appropriate. After all, they were Egyptians. Everyone else should be submissive. They were in luck, or at least they claimed to be in luck, for the story goes, on the walls of Hatshepsut's temple, that the Prince of Punt sent a message out to the surrounding lands, and all the chiefs of Punt of the land of the towns came to do obeisance, with, quote-unquote, bowed heads to receive this army of the king. It's probably slightly tweaked from reality, but the reality was probably not too far off, in the sense that the chiefs of Punt, recognising that this was a powerful and unusual neighbour, came down to trade to meet the Egyptians, and to secure whatever rights or obeisance they might have been able to get. 
they brought with them whatever local products they had to offer, and pretty soon Nehesi's ships were loaded with a whole stack of exotic goods to return to their own country. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The Egyptians soon set off from Punt after loading up their ships, and they may have brought some of the locals back with them. By this I mean that the inscriptions on the walls of Hatshepsut's temple show a roster of Puntite chiefs who have come back to Egypt to do obeisance to the Queen of Egypt. Quote, the kissing the earth to Usurit Kau Hatshepsut by the chiefs of Punt, the Nubian troglodytes. They say as they pray for peace from Her Majesty, Hail to thee, King of Egypt, the female Ra, who shines like the sun, your sovereign, mistress of heaven, Thy name reaches as far as the circuit of heaven. The fame of Ma'at Ka'rei Hatshepsut encircles the sea. Now, this seems rather unlikely to have actually occurred, because, after all, how were they going to get home? I would suggest the most likely story is that Nehesi received whatever obeisance or submission on site. He then brought word back to Hatshepsut, and she carved it as if they had come to Thebes itself. After all, if they gave obeisance to the envoy of the king, that was pretty much as good as giving obeisance to the king herself. Either way, it makes for a nice story, and it made Hatshepsut look good. It put her in the same shoes as her father, who had led so many military expeditions up to Syria and Canaan, and received the submission of towns there. By receiving the submission of the south, Hatshepsut was putting herself in the shoes of a great conqueror. More importantly, she had done it without spilling any blood. They simply recognised her greatness. So, out of the two, Hatshepsut seems to have the one up. As always, this is largely propagandistic, but it tells us a lot about how Hatshepsut wanted to represent herself, how she viewed her place in the world, and what she thought of the world around her. I'm going to get into more detail on the Egyptian Empire at this point in time in a later episode, but I think this little text really sums up how Hatshepsut represented the situation. Tutmos I, her father, had received the submission of the north. Hatshepsut received the submission of the south. Together, they brought the limits of the earth within the circumference of Egypt's influence, and thus, within the power of the god Amun. Speaking of Amun, what did he get out of this expedition? Well, let's get on to that. Now that Nehesi and the ships had returned from Punt, they brought with them all the goods that they had acquired from the princes of the region. These were carried back through the Wadi Hamamat to Koptos, then sailed upriver to Thebes. There, they were brought to the temple of Jesser Jesseru, which was now under construction. Hatshepsut took the offerings in a great ceremony and offered them to her father Amun. She is said to have counted the goods herself. With such acts and this ceremony, Hatshepsut's expedition was nearly complete. All it needed was some closing rituals. For this, we are told, there were three distinct events. Firstly, the goods and the offerings had to be brought before the queen and her patron. Second, the goods had to be measured and counted, so that all Egypt would know the splendour of the riches and the devotions that Hatshepsut was giving to Amun. 
but let's skip the measuring and weighing because it's really just a lot of accounting. Some highlights include the counting of 31 myrrh trees, 3300 head of cattle, and no less a prize than a live panther. That must have been an exciting gift. With the chiefs of Punt submitting, or having submitted at home, and the treasures of the expedition piled up in the courtyards of Jesser Jesseru and maybe Karnak, there was only one thing left, the grand finale. Hatshepsut now stepped forward to issue a grand speech to her subjects. She assembled the officials of the court and the priests of the major temples, in order to say, quote, I shine as king because my father Amun willed it to be so. Truly, it was my desire to act so that I should make great the one who created me, that I should make splendid all of Amun's offerings. I am doing as the great one Isis did for the Lord of Eternity, Osiris. I am increasing that which was done before, i.e. outdoing my predecessors. I will cause it to be said for eternity, how beautiful is she through whom such things have happened, because I have been so excellent to Amun, and the core of my heart has been full of that which is due to him. She carries on like this for a while, talking herself and Amun up big time. It gets a little bit tedious, but then she gets to the fun part. Quote, I issued a decree of my majesty, commanding a visit to the terraces of Myrrh, to explore Amun's way for him, to learn his circuit, to open his roads, according to the command of my father Amun himself. Trees were dug up in the god's land of Punt, and set down in Egypt. They were brought bearing myrrh within for placing ointment on the limbs of the divine statues, which I owed to the lord of the gods. This is a cute idea. Hatshepsut styles her great expedition as something akin to a voyage of discovery, to learn his or Amun-Ra's circuit, and to open his roads, suggests the idea that the Egyptians were exploring the limits of the world itself, the greatest extent of Amun-Ra's view and influence, and bringing back treasure for the glory of the god. It's a cute idea when you consider just how tiny the Egyptians' geographical knowledge was by our standards, but it mattered a lot to them. Hatshepsut was going to the limits of the known world on behalf of her father, and bringing back all that could be offered to his glory, and to hers. Finally, Hatshepsut sums up the result, which can only be described as a collector's mentality gone mental. She describes the new gardens of myrrh in Karnak and Jesser Jesseru as making a, quote, punt in Egypt. Quote, I have hearkened to my father, commanding me to establish for him a new punt in his temple, to plant the trees of God's land beside his temple in his garden, according to that which he commanded. It was done to endow the offerings which I owed him. I was not neglectful of that which he needed. He has desired that I be his favourite. I know everything that he loves. I have made for him a new punt in his garden, just as he commanded me to do for Thebes. It is large for him, and he walks abroad within it. I love this idea a garden of Amun in the heart of Thebes, a garden created by the Egyptians out of trees sourced from far away, carried on a long voyage, and then replanted in new soil. That's dedication to a cause, and it shows an increasing royal interest in botany, plants, and gardens as expressions of luxury and power. I'm mentioning this because it was going to be picked up by Hatshepsut's young co-regent Tutmos III later in his life, so we're going to come back to this. 
For Hatshepsut, the Garden of Amun was the culmination of her early efforts to unite her rule with the power of the god and his priesthood, and it ended splendidly. Jesser Jesseru was decked out with an elaborate garden of myrrh trees that were dug up, their roots anyway, by archaeologists who first explored it. So Hatshepsut wasn't telling any tall tales when she spoke of her temple at Deir al-Bahari and the Garden of Amun, which she had created from the spoils of Punt. With the end of her speech, Hatshepsut closed out the ceremonies of festivity in the temple. With the spoils of such a great expedition now dedicated to her divine father, Hatshepsut put the final stamp on an eight-year project to bring herself and her reign in closer unity with the great god and his priesthood. The culmination of the Punt expedition was the culmination of a project that Hatshepsut had been working on for the better part of a decade. With the expedition such a rousing success, the Queen was now sitting absolutely secure in her power, and she could proclaim to one and all that the great god had proven his favour and his support of her monarchy. The fact that she was a queen in another king's reign was not really a much of an issue as far as the priesthood was concerned. It had happened before, and Hatshepsut had proved herself a worthy ruler. The Punt expedition was proof of the gods' favour. The Punt expedition came to its end early in regnal year 9, around 1487 BCE. The whole affair probably took three to four months from beginning to end, not including those two years of preparation. Upon its completion, the account was dutifully written down by scribes, and turned into an appropriately formal and formulaic narrative. Then it was recorded on the walls of Jesser Jesseru, in artistic works and in inscriptions. The works themselves were probably carved long after the event, for the temple of Jesser Jesseru took some 15 years to complete. The artwork would have been the last phase to go in, once all the messy construction and carving had been completed. So Hatshepsut's account probably takes a small to great deal of artistic license. No, let me rephrase. It absolutely takes artistic license. While some details, like the Queen of Punt, the houses of the Puntites, and the goods that were brought back, are probably true to scribal records, many other details would have been tweaked to fit with proper Egyptian conventions. For example, the artistic representation bears a lot of similarities to another Punt expedition, one conducted about 700 years earlier. Back in the reign of Sahure of Dynasty V, a royal mission to the faraway land had brought back many of the same goods as Hatshepsut received. The journey was carved onto the walls of Sahure's pyramid complex, in the causeway, where there is a good chance Hatshepsut's artists and scribes were able to see them in her own day. While they may not have copied Sahure directly, there are more than a few parallels between the two narratives. That was for good reason. Like any sensible king before her, Hatshepsut looked to the past for what had been done well, and then she strove to emulate it, in order to finally surpass it. The journey to Punt was grander than any which had gone before, and it is the capstone of Hatshepsut's entire reign. The idea that she might have borrowed from earlier expeditions for her artistic representation is not so surprising. The project was now complete, and Hatshepsut turned her attention back to internal affairs, affairs within Egypt. As year nine began, and the female king settled into her power for good, the prospects seemed excellent. All was going very smoothly. (music) 
In the next episode, we will learn what Hatshepsut did with her authority, now that all of her bases were covered. Would she sit at home and enjoy her wealth? Or would she get out of Thebes and start doing some good, honest work for the rest of the country? To find out, join us next time on the Egyptian History Podcast. See you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.